Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, um, if we haven't met before, I'm Daniel. Um, I'm on staff here with Crew. My wife Missy is in the back. She's on associate staff. Um, yeah, she's awesome. She's pretty awesome. Okay, um, cool. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know we are going through uh, this talk series called God's Playlist. Uh, we are going through the Psalms. We're going through the Psalms, uh, and the word Psalm literally means spiritual song. The word psalm literally just means spiritual song. It is the biggest book in the Bible. It's 150 chapters long. And each and every one of those chapters are different spiritual songs that the people of God collected over the course of approximately 1,000 years. So they're written by somewhere between uh, 50 and 100 different authors, uh, again, over the course of thousands of years. And they collected them for this one purpose. Uh, It's because more than your beliefs... I didn't say in spite of, I said more than, but more than your beliefs, more than your life, God wants your heart. Songs incorporate the emotions. You can't sing something and not feel it and really be singing it. And what the Psalms teach us is just how much God wants our emotions, our hearts, our desires and our feelings and our love. It's what God really wants from you. To give you a little example of this, uh, there's this tradition in the ancient church. Uh, The early church fathers, uh, just heads up, so the first 200 years of Christian history, we were persecuted and killed for being Christians. The Romans and the Jewish people, the people who were predominantly um, in the area of the world uh, where the church was growing in the ancient world, uh, were literally just being persecuted and even killed by the hundreds, by the thousands, by the time 200 years of Christian history had finished, literally, potentially hundreds of thousands of Christians had been slaughtered for their faith. And then 200 years later, after all of this persecution and martyrdom, uh, all of a sudden, just literally overnight, Christianity became legal. And so there were these four councils of the church fathers, um, all these different pastors of all these different underground churches from all over the world, And they all got together, and over the course of a a couple decades, basically approximately 100 years, um, they had these four church meetings. Uh, The two most important were the first and last ones. They call them Nicaea and Chalcedon, or Chalcedon. It's a dead language, so no one speaks anymore, so say it however you want. Um, But Chalcedon. And at the end of all these meetings... They came up with what we call the Apostles' Creed, and they came up as they were discussing this creed, the core, the core foundation of what Christians believe. It was very interesting. They came up with these three terms. By this time, the primary language spoken by Christians in the world was Latin. And so they came up with these three terms they called the three orthos. The three orthos. The word ortho literally means proper or right or correct. And they said these three things are the essential things you need to actually be a Christian. Without any of them, you are not a true Christian. And they said there were these three orthos. The first, and the one we talk about the most, and the one that we have not forgotten in America today, in the American church today, is orthodoxy. 
orthodoxy. If you sit around Christians in America for long enough, you'll hear that phrase, orthodox or orthodoxy, get thrown around. We talk very rarely about what it actually means. The word orthodox or orthodoxy literally means proper belief or right belief. It is the right intellectual things you need to actually believe to be a Christian. And it is essential. It is one of the orthos. You cannot be a true Christian without really understanding and knowing and believing in your mind the truths about who Jesus is and who he is for you and who he wants to be through you. That is true. It is essential that you are orthodox. But in the ancient church, there were two other orthos, these terms that we rarely ever hear. I would go so far as to say they're forgotten. At least in 21st century America, they are forgotten. And they actually said, while they all three orthos were essential, they actually said these two other orthos were more important. All three essential, so no less or no more essential, but actually more important than orthodoxy. It's more important than believing the right things to being a Christian. The first of those orthos was orthopraxis. Everyone say orthopraxis. It's fun to say, isn't it? Orthopraxis. Um, Orthopraxis. What it means is right practices, proper practices. It literally means there is a lifestyle to Christianity. The word Christian literally means Christ follower or little Christ, depending on which language you translate it in, in the ancient world. But to be a Christian means you live a lifestyle. And if your lifestyle is not orthopraxis, if you're not living out and practicing the Christian life, Jesus gave a lot of sermons on how that was not Christian. If you believe all the right things, you have perfect orthodoxy, but you have no orthopraxis, you are not a Christian. Just gave a lot of sermons about that. You can look up Matthew 7 to get a feel. You can look up the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, if you really want to go deep, to learn just how many sermons. It's a collection of Jesus' primary sermons. It's just three chapters of nonstop lessons from Jesus. And the entire point is you are not a Christian if you have no orthopraxis. And if you think about it, it makes sense why Jesus and why the early church fathers would say that your practice is more important than your beliefs. Uh, anyone who's been through, through a communications class, an intro communications class, um, knows this. I was one of my majors when I was here. I graduated in 20, 2015. I am that old. Um, and, uh, but back then... Some things don't change. Uh, Your introductory comm classes here at UGA, you will learn a little secret that's hopefully no longer a secret. Um, If you're about to give a public public talk, right, if you're about to do some public speaking, uh, the first word, the first lesson that your comm teacher will tell you is to run into the bathroom before you give a talk, especially if you're nervous, if you're scared, if you feel uncomfortable. You are told to run into the bathroom and strike a pose, that you feel is either comfortable or strong or confident or engaged. And literally they tell you, hold it for like a minute. Just hold it. Because within 60 seconds, your human psychology will shift. If you are practicing confidence, you will begin to feel confident in almost no time at all. The truth is, a lot of times we try and wait for feelings or or think that fixing our beliefs are going to change our practice, the truth is your practice will shift your beliefs more than your beliefs will ever shift your practice. 
a year ago, we had a student uh, walk up to me, I had a student walk up to me and said, literally, and I quote, I'm not a Christian, but I really like you crew guys, and I want to do everything you do. Can I just, like, be mentored by you and follow you around and do everything you do for, like, however long? And I said, knowing what I know about orthodoxy and orthopraxis, yes. Yes, you may, even though you're not a Christian. Four months later, we're sitting down, and he sits down beside me and just looks me in the eyes and says, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, he's real. Yes, it's time for me to be a Christian. Actually, I'm already one. Your orthopraxis determines your orthodoxy a lot more than your orthodoxy determines your orthopraxis. So while they're both essential, the early church and Jesus both agreed, if you have to change one, the, most important, the more important one, not the more essential, but the more important one to change is your praxis. But there was a third ortho that I really do believe has, for the most part, been forgotten in our world, and that is orthopathy, orthopathy, and that means right heart. It means right feeling, right desires, right emotion, and right love. It's all four of those terms mixed up into one, and it was considered, while they're all three essential, you are not a Christian if you're missing any one of them, it is considered the most important. If you read Jesus' sermons, over a third of them are about nothing but orthopathy. You will actually hear him talk about how, whether he knew people or not, whether they cared for him, whether they loved him or not, it was his, actually his most talked about subject. Who do you love? Who do you desire? Who do you care for? Where are your emotions? Where's your heart? It was Jesus' most talked about sermon. Most, most, like the concentration of most of his sermons were about where's your Heart, not where's your mind, not do you believe the right things, not have you prayed the prayer, not are you living this out, are you doing good things, are you living righteously, but do you love me? Do you want me? Do you feel me? That was the center of Jesus' ministry and the center of of the orthos. Because if you want Jesus, if your heart is his, if you desire him, if you love him, believe me, it will change your practices and your practices will change your beliefs. And the early church understood this. The three orthos. But of the three, the most important and the one most talked about in scripture, the one most talked about by Jesus was orthopathy. Where is your heart? And the Psalms are all about that. Where is your heart? So if you want to love Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, yes, he wants your mind. Yes, he wants your life, but he wants first and foremost your heart. And that's why we're in the Psalms. That's why we're in the Psalms. Uh, speaking of that, if you'll open up to Psalm 27. Tonight we're in Psalm 27. And Psalm 27 is really important. It takes us on an emotional journey. Again, it's emotional takes us on an emotional journey from fearfulness to fearlessness. See, in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there is one common theme, one mark that God says over and over and over again will mark his people. He says, if you want to know someone who's actually walking with me, if you want to know someone who actually has all three orthos, if you want to know someone who looks like me, you will notice this, they fear not. If you want some examples of this, just read 
Joshua chapter 1. Chapter chapter 1, it's literally over and over. Every like three verses. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. You will be people who are fear not. You will be people who fear less. Or fear has no power over you. If you were to translate that phrase, fear not, into modern English, probably the best way of saying it would be fearless. Fearless. So in a world that is dominated by fear, I, I don't feel like a deep need to talk to y'all about how consumed our world is right now in fear. Anxiety, terror, panic attacks are an all-time high. Suicide is an all-time high. Our world is being run and driven by fear. And 90% of our psychology as human beings, most people, over 90% of their psychology is driven by their innermost fears. So I don't feel a deep need to, do, to, to describe to y'all just how dominated, just how fearful, how dominated by fear our world is. We are in a world that is fearful. And yet in this fearful world, God says, you'll know my children, my daughters and my sons, by how they are fearless. So how do we go from fearfulness to fearlessness? Psalm 27 takes us on that journey. But... Before we go there, I want to give y'all one more piece of context. Just bear with me for one. I promise we're about to open up the Bible. But bear with me for one more minute. I, I don't want y'all to miss this. You won't understand it if you don't understand this context. See, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul is going on. He's giving this uh, phrase. If, you, if you've ever read it before, if you've been to enough weddings, you've probably heard this passage. It's talked a lot. It's talked about a lot in weddings, which is ironic because it's not about romance. But um, there's like entire books of the Bible on romance, and yet they choose. I don't get it. Anyway, um, sorry, y'all. Confessions of a, confessions of a minister. Um, uh, Roman. <laughs> sorry, I was thinking about better passages. There we go. Um, Corinthians thirteen thirteen though, is talking about the power of God's love, the power of God's love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, at the end, he like capstones this big passage with this very quoted but often ignored phrase. Paul says this little nugget of truth, this nugget of truth that I'm convinced he got at least partially from Psalm 27. Because Paul had read Psalm 27 quite a few times, had it memorized word for word. He says this, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of which is love. Some of your translations will say, these three abide, or these three endure. That phrase literally means, these three can't die. These gifts of the Holy Spirit, it talks about faith, hope, and love as gifts that the Spirit works in you, that you receive from God. It says, these three can't lose. They never lose, no matter what comes up against them. These three never die. These three always win. Faith, hope, and love. And so it should come as no surprise that what we're going to see, guys, in this journey in Psalm 27, from fearfulness to fearlessness, is a journey of love and hope and faith. So before we even dive in, I just want you to hear this. This is what we're going through tonight. God wants to take each and every one of you from fearfulness to fearlessness by letting you encounter his love by holding on to his hope and by experiencing and building his faith. That's the secret. There you go. That's the answer. But I want you to experience it, right? It's an emotional encounter. So we have to actually go through it. So open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 27. 
Psalm 27. If you got them, we're in Psalm 27. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, even then I will be confident. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will have no fear. It's a pretty epic start, right? Now, this is something I, I don't want you all to miss who wrote this. See, a lot of times we skip over that first part. Can you put that up again? This is a Psalm of David. Most of y'all missed that, right? I missed that. First, God knows how many years I was following the Lord. A Psalm of David. And let me tell you why that's important. We have a tendency to metaphorize Scripture. We have a tendency to metaphorize Scripture, especially the Psalms. When we read them, we assume that they're not being literal. We assume that when, when it says that Jesus calmed the storms, oh, that's just what he wants to do in your emotions. It's true. But no, that means Jesus calmed a storm with a word. We assume that when we see him raising people from the dead, oh, God wants to revive your heart and your inner life. Well, he does, and he can. But you know he can because he can do it physically too. Psalm 27 is written by David. This is the same David who, when he was a teenager, probably younger than most of you in this room, he was somewhere between the ages of 13 and 18 because he wasn't considered a full, full man or a young man when he went up against Goliath. This is the same kid who went up against a guy who was somewhere between 9 and 12 feet tall who was fully armored with nothing but a stone and a sling. And if he had lost... That giant would have killed him and then eaten his flesh as a symbol of his victory. So when he says, when enemies surround me to devour my flesh, he's being very literal. He's being very literal. This is David who was constantly besieged by the Philistines. So when he says war breaks out against me, he's being very very literal. At the end of this psalm, you're going to hear him say, even though my father and my mother betray me, his father-in-law tried to kill him. For years, he is being very literal. Yes, there are metaphors in Scripture, but remember, don't just metaphorize Scripture. This is not a metaphor. This is a testimony. This is a testimony of a man who has watched God bring him from fearfulness in the midst of circumstances that are terrifying. And is sitting there before the congregation of Israel and saying, I have no fear. Not, I don't feel any fear, but fear has no purchase on my soul. Yes, I feel afraid, but it's not going to motivate me. Yes, I know what it's like to be afraid, but it's not why I do what I do. It has no power over me. This is a testimony. Let's see how David got here from this testimony. He begins to dive in in verse 4. How did he get from fearfulness to fearlessness? Check this out, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Some of your translations will say, seek him where his presence dwells, in his house. See, the first step, from fearfulness to fearlessness, is encountering the love of God. 
you have to encounter the love of God. It is the only cure for your fear emotionally. You're going to try, people try to reason through their fear. You will never reason out of your fear. You have to feel through it. You have to feel through it. You cannot think through, you cannot reason through fear. It is an emotion. And the only healing is the emotional encounter of the love of God. In 1 John 4, John is talking, and he says, the reason people experience fear, the primary reason we experience fear as human beings is because we expect punishment. And then he says this, but God's perfect love casts out all fear. God's perfect love casts out all fear. See, when you realize that the God of the universe, see, I didn't say when you understand, when you realize, when it becomes real for you, that the God of the universe loves you, that the guy who spins galaxies on his finger is taking care of you and holds you in his hand, that he died on the cross, that he would rather die than live without you. You stop worrying about your sins. You stop worrying about your circumstances. When it becomes real that he beat death for you, when you recognize, when you experience, when you taste his love, it is impossible to be afraid. This is the first step Davis takes us through. He says, you've got to encounter the love of God. And I want you, I don't want you all to miss this real quick. I want you all to notice this. When he talks about where and how he encountered this, notice where and how he actually encountered God. He says it's in the house of God as he was worshiping. As he was gazing upon God's beauty, that's an expression for saying having this intimate spiritual encounter while he was in worship. Y'all, you have to when you're worshiping. Worship is the most primal form of encountering God. It's why at the beginning and the end of every single one of these meetings, we begin it and we end it with worship and with prayer it's not because it sounds good. It's not because it's fun. It's because we want you to emotionally and spiritually and intellectually, yes, and physically, but emotionally encounter the love of God. But you have to give God the door to actually experience that. See, some of y'all in this room, you've never really encountered emotionally the love of God or not in the depth that you know you need it. Not deep enough to actually calm your fear. Some of y'all look around the room when we're worshiping and you see people raising your hands and you say, ah, that's not for me. What will people think? But what if I don't feel it? It's impossible to be afraid of people when you are giving God space to encounter you. It is also impossible to give him space in your heart to encounter emotionally his love, love that can kill your fears and your insecurities. If you're holding on to your insecurities about what other people might think of you. Some of y'all make a lot of noise. You're making so much noise that you can't hear what he's saying to you. Some of you need to, just like the Psalms talk about later, be still and know that he is Lord. Some of you need to kneel. Some of you need to be quiet. Some of you need to get in the stillness. Some of you are afraid of sharing. You haven't given God the room to meet you in community, and yet we have prayer ministers here. But what will they think if I say this? Oh, but I don't really need prayer. Oh, but I'm too busy. 
are you giving God the heart space to encounter you in worship? Some of y'all are practical, but let me give you a practical step. Give him the space. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. In verse 5, he keeps going, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Notice how many he wills are in there. He will, he will, he will. Verse 6, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make a melody. I will sing and make music to my God. The next step in fearlessness is hope. It's hope. And I want to dwell here for a minute. I've heard thousands of sermons on the love of God. I've heard tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of sermons on his faith, on having faith in Jesus. I've heard so few sermons, if any, on hope. On the hope of Jesus Christ. There is this term you'll see that we translate to hope in the New Testament. It's called elpis. Everyone say elpis. You guys are getting all your Greek and Hebrew today. Elpis. Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. That's great. Elpis. In the ancient world, before Christians started using it, it literally was normally used to invoke terror. See, what elpis meant was seeing the end of a situation, seeing the end of a lifetime, and knowing you could not avoid it. That is literally what Elpis meant. And yet, what Christians started to do, what Paul started to do, when he started to go around to all these Greeks and share the gospel, he said, look, 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 before your Elpis was death. Before Christ, without Christ, your Elpis was and would forever have been death. But now, but now, in Christ, your Elpis, your end, your eternity is heaven. If you have Christ, your Elpis, your foreseeable future, your end that is in sight is heaven. And nothing can stop it. And nothing can change it. What should have, a term that used to cause terror, fear, dismay, became the ultimate term for hope. For the Christians. And if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you need to hear this and you need to know this. The great bridge, the great chasm between fearlessness and fearfulness is whether you have hope. Whether Christ is your hope. Because if Christ is not your hope, no matter what happens in your life, it will fill you with fear. Because the ultimate elpis of your life will be death. The foreseeable future of any shift, any change, anything unforeseen, any end in sight, ultimately your end, which will be death, unless Jesus comes again, will be doom. Your elpis will fill you with fear. You will be fearful. But if Christ is your elpis, if he is your hope, if he is your foreseeable future, if he is the end that you cannot escape and that nothing can take you from, then the only thing you will be filled with is hope, is joy, because you know you don't lose. In the end, you do not lose, and nothing can steal that from you. I remember, I just want to give a quick example of this. 
uh, when I was 10 years old, my dad had a great idea. Um, for me, it was a great idea. Uh, he said, I'm going to take my son. He got a season passes to Six Flags. And for the whole summer, I, was, I, I have always been vertically challenged. That has not changed. Uh, when I, uh, but just as I was getting to the age of 10, I was just getting tall enough to ride some of the bigger roller coaster rides. Batman had just come out that year. And so what my dad said was, okay, all summer I'm going to take you on like smaller roller coaster rides. And at the end of the summer, on your birthday, we're going to take you to Six Flags and you're going to ride the Batman. And I said, yes. And so because all summer I'd been going on smaller ro roller coaster rides, because I knew when you get off a roller coaster ride, you feel a ton of endorphins and you feel great and there's tons of twists and turns, but you get off at the end. I thought, this is going to be awesome. My best friend at the time, Ben, uh, two weeks before coming, decided it would be a good idea to read, look up online about every single person who had died on a Six Flags roller coaster in the last 30 years. As you can tell, uh, he went into this thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. So when we got on Batman, and there were a bunch of twins, twists and spins and flips and turns, every flip, every twist, every spin, every turn. Ben thought, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to And on the little picture we have, he is literally just like, ah. Every flip, every spin, every twist, every turn, because I had been conditioned to assume, not only am I getting off of this, but it will be awesome. I was just like, this is awesome, this is awesome, right? Here's the deal. If your hope is in the world, every twist, every spin, every flip God gives you, even if it's the best thing you could ever imagine, if, even if it's like he promises to do in Ephesians, beyond anything you ever asked or imagined from him, you will experience it, you will encounter it with terror. It will fill you with fear. If your Elpis, if your hope is Jesus, if you know your end is heaven, if you know that not even death can beat you, every twist, every flip, every turn, even every trial, your instinct, what will rise up in you, will be hope and joy. You will say, God, how are you going to get me out of this one? This is going to make a great story someday. Even if I lose, I win. Even if I lose, I win. Hope is the great bridge, the great bridge between fearfulness and fearlessness. You will be filled with fear without it. You will be filled with joy with it. He doesn't stop there, though. He keeps going. This is verse 7. Hear, O Lord. Some translations will actually say, You hear, O Lord. When I cry aloud, you will be gracious to me. You'll answer me. You've said, Seek my face. My heart, here it is again, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, you who have been, past tense, my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation, for my father and mother, there it is, my father and mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. There is a result when you encounter the love of God, there is a result when you begin to hope in him and you cling to that hope. And the result is faith, trust, a deep relationship with Jesus. 
We talk, we talk about having faith in God or trusting God with things. You can't do that without emotions. You can't do that without encountering his love emotionally. You can't do that with, without holding on to his hope. But if you do, students, I really want you all to hear this. If you do, what will result is true faith, trust, and intimacy in a relationship with a God who is not an abstract force that's somewhere out there, with a God who is not maybe there for you sometimes, but a God who has been there when no one else could be, a God who has stood up for you when no one could, a God who has loved you when no one else would, a God who was your rock when everything else fell apart, who was able to sustain you through anything in hope. You will come out of it being able to actually say, even if my most intimate relationships fall away, the Lord still loves me. I know that. I felt it. So I can keep trusting in him. You will be able to say, no matter what happens, I have hope. I will never be defeated. Because I've seen him do it over and over again. That is how faith is built. And when you have it, you will know what it means to have the mark of the Christian. You will know what it means to be fearless. Read this with me. I just, I don't want y'all to miss what David says at the end here. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and they breathe out violence. I'm going through it again, Lord. I'm going through it again. But this time I know your love. This time I cling to your hope. This time we've got a foundation of faith. So he says this, verse 13 and 14. I believe. A better way of saying that would be, I know. I know. I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Take courage and wait upon the Lord. I know I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you want to see it, and if you want to know that you will continue to see it, this is the journey the Lord wants to take you on, not in your heads, not by changing your practices, but by moving in your hearts. He wants to take you from fearfulness to fearlessness. So let him in. Let him love you. The most primal way that happens is in worship. Do not miss the chance to let him move you. Cling to hope. Keep your elpis, keep your destination in mind. Nothing can steal it from you. Nothing can take it from you. Let him build a foundation of faith. Let him actually build a true and real relationship with you. And you will know the mark of the Christian. You will be fearless and you will see the goodness of the Lord in your very life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, 
pray right now in your name, Lord, that fear would have no place in our hearts, that you would move us even now, God, that you would move us from fearfulness to fearlessness. God, I pray right now, Lord, for your love to consume us as we worship. I pray, Lord, especially for those who just cannot see your hope. God, I pray for Elpis to come upon us right now, that we would see your end for us, Lord, that you have great plans for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. Lord, I pray for that hope to become real in this moment. I pray, Jesus, for you to build faith in us. God, mark us with your fearlessness. Amen.